This is What Are You Looking At? and I'm Pip Stafford. This episode is a bit different to what I was expecting. Usually episodes of What Are You Looking At? are pretty smooth, they're pretty easy, Uh, but this time it was not. So I've asked Andrew Harper to step in and help me because not only is he the person that I live with and that I'm married to, but he's also an arts writer and somebody who comes from a very different class background to me. So I thought that was kind of interesting to start with. I come from a working class background and I'm an artist, which is pretty unusual. And it's been interesting navigating the world of art coming from that background. And I know that my mum really wanted to be an artist. She was from this working class background and she came out of high school. She took an apprenticeship as a hairdresser because that was sensible. You know, she got offered it and it was a sensible thing to do. And she tried to go to art school at night, but she said she really didn't feel like she fit in at art school. So she quit and became a hairdresser. So I guess in that way, I probably did have kind of more support than a lot of people coming from working class backgrounds had to become an artist. But also I feel like it would be harder now for people from my background to become an artist than it was for me. My family is aspiring upper class, upper class, middle class who comes through a culture of private schools. They very much uh, cite themselves as living in um, more affluent suburbs in Tasmania, i.e., you know, like Sandy Bay and Taruna. And I went to a private school. Um, My parents both went to private schools and are very much embedded in a culture of yacht clubs, you know, like, pro-royalty and certain uh, ways of viewing class and class structure. They didn't necessarily have money, but they liked to pretend that they did. Uh, And I think that's a hallmark of what that sort of class structure is in Tasmania. But it's definitely very middle class. It's certainly not working class. I find this mildly embarrassing to talk about because it's it's something that like I grew up around, but I also recognise it as really fraudulent and terrible. Also, I'm an artist and a writer, and it's funny how that's viewed by that strata as well. So I grew up... Um not alienated from art and culture at all. Like, my family were really interested in art in a fairly narrow framework of what Mm. art is, but my parents certainly took me to art galleries, like, you know, big art galleries, Mm. and my family were really creative people, but we're not artists, and I certainly don't come from a kind of dynasty of artists or 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 a background where art was considered to be a viable career even though yeah my parents did support me you know in theory but didn't really understand 
what what I did or how I existed in the world. It's interesting that you mentioned that idea of uh, a dynastic sort of like art career. Like there are people with, there are people that I know who are roughly in between our age strata who's their artists and their parents were artists and that sort of that was it seemed to be that was what they were always going to do and there's a sort of art that's accepted by uh the middle class uh, like the middle class which is very much stuff like landscape art there is but there's a particular structure of a type of art that you're allowed to do that is endorsed by the middle class and it, it's interesting because it overlaps with colonialism and a lot of and and ideas of you know like I could even go first so far as to say ideas of terra nullis. I think that's really important in the way that we understand a lot of art in Tassie and beyond. It serves a cultural purpose. So this episode is about class. Originally, I interviewed Ju Bavakar, Luke Bacon and Tessa Zettel from Front Yard, which is an arts organisation in Sydney, as part of Alex Huller's project Homeland at CAT in 2022. Unfortunately, due to the kind of collective issues I have had in compiling this episode, I no longer have the files, which is unfortunate as it was a great chat. But I also spoke with artist Mish Grieger and writer-researcher Miriam McGarry about class, art, housing and Bogan Pride. This is Mish. My name is Mish Grigor. I'm an artist based in Melbourne and I'm one of the directors of the collective Aphids. I've been interested in sort of how class intersects with I suppose what I would call like a middle class habitus of the arts for a long time and I think that just comes from my lived experience growing up really working class and then entering into the art world and discovering many people, whether or not it is that everyone is middle class, but certainly that the kind of way of being in the art world feels very middle class. There's a lot of complexity and and repercussions for that. So Misha's 2022 theatre work Class Act examines art and class And it does so through a retelling of the musical My Fair Lady in what the Age reviewer Cameron Woodhead calls a boganised fever dream. Um, I grew up with My Fair Lady. It's got a very special place in my heart. But I never saw the film or the play. I just had, well, my grandmother had a vinyl record of the score and I would play it and sing along and dance along to it. And eventually for the Hobart Dancer Steadford, I did a version of Wouldn't It Be Lovely playing Eliza Doolittle. And that was kind of really representative of my engagement with culture growing up. Almost like I got bits and pieces and as I grew up I kind of cobbled them together in an understanding of what art and culture looks like. It's fascinating to me because I recall as well being exposed to My Fair Lady through my mum and she really loved it because she's an Anglophile. She saw it as this kind of representation of like the superiority of British culture and 
I I just thought it was funny. That was something that was around for me as well, but like it was presented in an entirely different way. I started thinking about this this show called Class Act. I used to have quite a broad Australian accent, but when I hang out with my family, their accent is much broader and much more flat, you know, and I think that's really interesting because in some way I've been held in this middle-class world and softened my accent, which is very strange. I was really interested in bogans in an Australian context and the way that the bogans are really unusual in that they're kind of loved and hated as a construct. And this idea that even if you start to have, like, you know, we have this construct of the the, the cashed-up bogan and the way that that's linked into all kinds of different types of being, you know, making money from, for example, working in the mines, but not having the education or the taste to know how to spend your money in the right way, uh, in a refined way or in a way that has uh, cultural value from a certain like high culture perspective. And I think that I would probably class myself as a bogan or as like coming from the world of bogans, even though no one most of the time, even people who are Bogans, I mean, there is this idea of like Bogan pride as well. <laughs> but there's also like, they can be much maligned in culture and sort of looked down upon. And so I just was thinking a lot about how culture shifts and changes. And then I wanted to make a show about my sort of using myself as an example. I started thinking about the makeover trope. And the way that in films, often there's a woman who's uneducated. I just was thinking specifically about My Fair Lady um, and how she's like, there is this like, like, you know, my mum loves Audrey Hepburn and loves My Fair Lady. And there's this place in our popular culture imaginings in Australia where it's like, oh, such a beautiful story of like a woman who was like really rough and then she learned how to speak and then suddenly she's a better person. But when I went back and examined both that and a bunch of more contemporary sort of um, 1990s films like She's All That, where there's like a woman who's living her own life, completely happy, but then she is somehow, when she becomes attractive in a conventional sense, she's a more worthy person. And I started really zooming into My Fair Lady. When you look back at it, it's really horrendous. The language in it is really about how at the beginning this woman is more of an animal and a monster than a person and that she becomes civilised and then she becomes human <laughs> in, the, in the construct of the time, but then that she has this deep loneliness where she doesn't belong anywhere because she can't go back to her old life and she can't actually fit into the middle class life because she doesn't have the resources to. And so I started thinking a lot about how when things change, often there's a cost to it because any anyone who does any kind of code switching or goes between different worlds can feel like they aren't wholly of one world. Since 2016, the idea of like white working class people, I think, has been shifting throughout the West. And that comes from a kind of Trump Brexit situation happening overseas. But also I think here with the marriage equality vote and where people were sort of seen as like these kind of you know, hicks or, or backwards or, or just a sort of divide and a, and an ongoing feeling of the, the old ideas that I grew up with about like working class solidarity and people kind of working together across di difference seem to be falling apart more and more. And I thought that was especially true when I was thinking about intersectionality on a larger scale and how identity politics <laughs> meant that there is more 
attention or, or awareness to t- diversity within the arts on some level and when that fails as well or when it when we can't see it or when it's not happening in a way that feels there's integrity there all these kind of conversations I suppose I just became more and more interested in how on the kind of other end of the power scale how whiteness and class fit into this kind of larger question around intersectionality and how we understand difference and how we understand power So there was research published in a paper in the UK by a whole group of researchers from different UK universities called Social Mobility and Openness in Creative Occupations Since the 1970s. And I think in Australia, the picture is probably not much better. I was thinking specifically around how funding for the arts has been really hammered over the last few years or over the last decade or more and the pandemic really didn't help things. There's something else to consider here which is the something that I lived through uh, which was the introduction of uh, university fees Uh, and I think that's had an impact on not just on the arts but on the integration of people from you know like working class or or poorer backgrounds into any form of uh, any form of culture you know there was a point where people you know you could go to university and not pay anything and that was incredible social mobility for people in lots of different professions and there's like the way there's an emphasis on you know, like on trades and trade professions, though that's interesting as well because um, you've got people who are earning a lot more money and those are the cashed up bogans, the bogans, funny word, um, that is being referred to here. But also people are being levered out of certain types of professions and they're like, they're ones that are more associated with you know, like upper and middle class career trajectories, like the legal profession, although, you know, like people still go into law, like you. (laughs) But I think there's been a concerted effort, and this is like paranoid and conspiratorial, but I think there's been a concerted effort to actually lock people out of a number of professions, including the arts. And, you know, like there's a, you know, there's a class politic in there uh, that I, I can't, steer myself away from because there's a radicalness to the arts that happens particularly in the 70s where it's crossing over with the union movement and the green movement as well and you had things like you know like the those massive strikes in sydney and the green bands and that sort of stuff couldn't exist at this point although the union movement is currently in flux and changing and is no longer quite so attached to a conservative institution like the Labor Party. There is a new Labor movement emerging and it's very young and it's quite radical and it has the intersectionality that's been mentioned. I kind of want to zoom into Tasmania a bit here mm-hmm. um, because I talked to Miriam McGarry and her research and interest is around the kind of social condition of housing And I talked to her about that in the context of Tasmania and the arts really specifically. So maybe first we'll listen to what Miriam has to say. Sounds good. I'm Miriam McGarry. I'm a researcher and writer based in Lutruida, Tasmania, um, interested in built and natural environments. I run the podcast Hidden Cities, which looks at 
policies and economic structures in relation to housing affordability. And I previously did a PhD on the impact of Mona on cultural policy and urban planning in Hobart. Obviously, housing unaffordability and supply issues affects everybody, particularly those that have a lower income. But thinking particularly about artists, there's kind of two edges to it. Firstly, it's things like rental stress or inability to have secure housing is a, you know, that's an enormous stress on anyone, but particularly for someone who has a creative practice, which maybe doesn't have a really structured career pathway or income stream that can really limit someone's ability to take risks or pursue things that are really of interest and excitement to them. And I guess that could potentially result in a narrowing window of who gets to be an artist and who can take those risks and who has access to take up opportunities that, you know, might not get paid on a regular way that mean that you can meet increasing rental payments or that, you know, you might not pursue a creative profession because you don't want to look down the future of no super and renting for all of your life. So I guess there's kind of that side of it. On the other side, there's also living on Centrelink payments, particularly when people are starting out. Centrelink's barely changed beyond meeting CPI since the 70s. Rental payments have significantly gone up. I'm pretty sure in every capital city in Australia, if you're a single person, there is not a single affordable rental that you could pay for with a Centrelink payment. So I guess the stress of having somewhere to live is quite significant. But on top of that, if you need to rent a studio space on top of your primary rental, that's pretty limiting. And I guess people are increasingly living in share houses or environments with a lot of friends or colleagues or randoms from Gumtree, which can really limit people's studio space options either to have an external space or even within a house. And I guess COVID has helped everyone learn to work from home, but I think it's meant that a lot of artists are now kind of working from their bedrooms because there's just not physically space that they can afford to have to pursue their creative practice. So one of the things that helped me become an artist was cheap rent in Hobart, really. I moved out of home when I was 17 and I was earning $200 a week working in a bar and I was paying, I don't know, I think it was $70 rent, which was a lot at the time. Mm. And actually, eventually, I paid less rent rather than more rent. And that's not really possible now. And I actually wonder how people do it. Yeah, uh, I believe that would be absolutely true just because of the way if you were on welfare in the 90s, it was actually quite easy to to exist and you know like you didn't have to you didn't have to look for as many jobs there was a realization that there weren't that many jobs around and people would just get on with stuff and there was a lot of free time and space to produce cultural activities i wasn't considering myself an artist at that point when that was happening i was probably more just involved in putting you know putting on events and it was really easy to do and rents were really cheap. One share house I was in, I was playing 40 bucks a week for a room at one point. And yeah, it was pretty scungy, 
but you know, forty bucks a week, and that was and that was that was the Howard era. But gradually, things have tightened, and it seems like it's absolutely terrifying, and people are living living very precariously. Just to go back to what you were saying a bit before, this idea of the working class, like I think the upwardly mobile, uh, if not aspirations, then actions or certain intentionality. Uh, making a life that's like progressively better or more comfortable, more secure. I think that's a really particular thing to the last kind of hundred years and thinking about what that means if you enter into like a less secure industry like the arts and, and how you navigate that and how you navigate the idea of personal risk that you're taking if you not you don't have a regular income, you don't have a job, you don't have a career trajectory. I think all of that stuff's really complicated especially when you've been fed this narrative which is like really the narrative of capitalism and like neoliberal kind of thing of like if, if you work hard you will have a comfortable life and you can rise above these certain things and if you can't there must be something wrong with you. I think it's hard to separate a kind of global shift around an increased commodification of housing and I'd say that Australia is in a like hyper commodification phase where housing is much more likely to be treated as an asset and a way to accumulate wealth than a home within the way that the economy is structured, but also socially and culturally we think about housing. So there's increased hyper commodification coupled with, you know, historically Tasmania had kind of air quotes, affordable housing, um, particularly for interstate visitors that came down and would see the kind of lifestyle that they could have a strong tourism background and economy, both stimulated by the arts and pre-existing arts tourism, and the rise of Airbnb kind of aligning with this kind of arts tourism timeframe. Obviously, people talk about the Mona effect, and that's something that I've done some research into, but it really just feels like a perfect storm to me of all of these different things coming together at once. Short-stay accommodation has definitely impacted rental availability and affordability. And across Australia, there's nowhere that hasn't been affected by rising house prices, but regional areas where people often have lower incomes, the people that are impacted by those rising house prices are really those least benefiting from the profit of them and most disadvantaged by the rental and mortgage rises and I think somewhere like Tasmania I guess it's it's small enough that you can kind of see that shifting in real time and see who's benefiting from that arts tourism economic flow and who's kind of less advantaged by it. I also want to just talk briefly about the way that that kind of mythology of the way we could get away with living in these kind of precarious situations where we were paying not much rent also play into that idea of the poor artist and how the artist is supposed to live. And I think when you come from a working class background, there's kind of potentially less of that mythology Like, there is, as Mish will talk about, a kind of shame around poverty. Like, the correct way is to be more upwardly mobile. And I know for my parents, they really instilled in me this idea that of kind of 
neatness and cleanliness and moving up by speaking in a particular way Mm. you'll probably notice that you actually speak with a broader Australian accent that I do uh, most of the time I slip occasionally but I was really brought up to speak really properly and to make sure that I didn't talk in certain ways it is interesting for me as well I do know that the amount of time that I spent on the dole was a cause of great shame to my family which I which I somewhat brattily and pretentiously reveled in but I was quite you know, I was quite happy to uh, receive welfare welfare payments and that sort of thing and that's you know like that is a sense of entitlement as well you know like I'm just going to sort of like waft around and like pretend to be an artist and I associated that with a with a form of rebelliousness but it was pretty vacuous sort of take on that sort of thing and privileged and entitled and that's the background that is the background that I came from although the way I behaved was not acceptable to that social strata either which is kind which is kind of interesting you know, like it was like, when are you going to get a real job? I was told to be upwardly mobile, like that. That was really true. I mean, like the next stage for me, like I was the first person in my family to go to university too. And I think, were you as well? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, in my immediate family. Yeah. Yeah, and, and there was this idea that I'd sort of like go to a another layer of, of middle classness which was like you know get a profession become a barrister and I did no such thing and ended up ended up involved in the arts which was of course a cultural disaster you know it's funny recently I asked you a question which for me really revealed the difference in our backgrounds mm. which was I asked you what your first crappy job was as a teenager mm. and you said, I didn't have one, and I said, why? And you said, because I didn't want one. Mm. Which for me wasn't an option. No. Um, There was a real sense of needing to not work to, like... I'm not, like, being sent down the coal mines here to support my 12 siblings or something. I don't want to paint that kind of picture, but, like... You must become a productive member of society and of the family and get experience, Mm. which was a big one, uh, as soon as humanly possible. So I had a job the minute it was legal to Mm. have a job, you know, in a bakery. And I've never not had a job. Yeah, it was absolutely something that I didn't want to do and avoided as much as possible. But, like... This also coincided with me becoming involved because I I got involved with the arts and performance arts quite young and I was very cognizant that there was money floating around there and I started focusing on that to get paid but I never thought of it as a job and it wasn't it certainly wasn't in the same way that you're talking about. I think there's like a lot of shame around poverty and shame around whether or not that you're like destitute but perhaps like the if you come from humble you know humble (laughs) 
but safe and happy or, or not safe and not happy. But like just, you know, if you come from a not middle class, perfect life, how do you own that story in all of its like bumpy weirdness? Because if you're kind of buying into that larger narrative, you have to kind of reconcile with the fact that there's a certain part of you that's like, well, why did my parents have that? Or why, you know, why didn't, why couldn't we have, I don't know, whatever, gone to a better school or and then the kind of flip side, I think, of that shame is a kind of fury when you start to think about the structural reasons why your school wasn't good enough or the structural reasons why your parents were trying to, you know, shift your accent or, or guard your accent <laughs> and not, not, not it be um, affected by the kind of working class sounds of those around you. And like what is, yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff to sort of work through and for me, it's like a very fascinating area around what, you know, like what it is to be Australian as well. Like if you're thinking of or, or your reflections on how that relates to, uh, relates to a wider race conversation, I think it's like absolutely like goes back to colonisation. Unfortunately, every conversation in Australia <laughs> goes back to colonisation and like what kind of Australia people wanted to make with what kind of people and for whom, you know, and where did that come from? It comes from Britain. It comes from people in power. It comes from a construction about what it is to be a person and what it is to have a life and what kind of country is a worthy place and what kind of societies and sophistications are valued and which ones are not and need to be oppressed or rubbed out or, you know, overthrown or whatever horrible words they would use. Of course, the kind of starving artist is such a kind of trope in narratives around, you know, pursuit of beauty and truth through economic struggle. But I think also those narratives came out of a very different time and place and different set of stresses and conditions for people pursuing creative practices um i think really like like anything in the world if you don't have stable and secure housing it's really hard to then be inventive and risk-taking but also the stress of that insecurity can really have detrimental outcomes so obviously i'm really interested in housing so that kind of underpins a lot of the things that i think about but in terms of even just people making good environmental decisions or participating in community activities or, I don't know, having a rich, fulfilling life of their own, I guess having stable and secure housing is really, you know, it's a basic human right that really underpins your ability to participate fully in society. So for artists, it's, as for anyone, it's essential. But I guess in particularly thinking about artists and creative practitioners, without stable and secure housing, it's really difficult to then pursue the thing that you're interested in or passionate about or driven to create in a full and rich way, which doesn't mean that people in insecure housing can't have an incredible creative practice because obviously we know that brilliant things come out of uh, a variety of environments and a lot of Tasmania's most exciting and interesting artists don't come from wealthy backgrounds that have given them access to mortgages and homeownerships and all those kinds of things. I think there's some, yeah, that that myth of like, 
also like the kind of glamour of being bohemian and being poor. I had I had a real like I've got a friend who I can have kind of honest discourse with, and she was telling me about how when she was younger, you know, they she lived in this really scummy share house and like they really lived the life of the bohemians and I was like yeah but it was just sort of I was saying to her kind of the similar thing of like it was really just it was cosplay or it was like it was kind of a game you could always like I was like you know like Jarvis Cocker like common people kind of situation and I was like teasing her and she was trying to say to me no but we really lived it we didn't call anyone and and I think it's this idea, like you know, we didn't, we never got our parents to help us out with money. We really were broke, and we really, we really couldn't afford, you know, to get the heating on and all this stuff. And trying to understand that there's not when you've grown up poor, or when you're trying to, when your family's even just like giving you the message that like your life should be better. I think that I, there is no glamour to poverty. Actually, like it's not glamorous to be hungry or to like worry that if your mum. Like, you know, like I, we, you know, if the washing machine broke when I was growing up, we couldn't fix it. We had to hand wash our clothes for a while while we saved up because we couldn't afford to get a credit card washing machine because that would be like a cycle of debt that would like literally keep, you know, the, <laughs> my mum up at night, which meant that the house was hellish. Like these kind of things. And you, so you, like as an adult, if you, there's, there's nothing fun about <laughs> pretending to be poor because <laughs> it just brings up a whole bunch of like, memories and compassion for those people in those situations and you have to navigate like the future and and the future of your family you know like all of these things and so even just the sort of understanding of that is really hard to communicate to someone who doesn't have that lived experience it's very odd I think in the arts as opposed to like I don't know science or any other industry (laughs) where how do we wipe the shit because I think that a lot of people who are glamorizing uh, this artist myth of being poor would also argue that artist labor is valuable labor and that artist time is valuable and so like holding both of these things can be really conflicting because I, I don't know how to reconcile the way or, or when that myth will go away you know like when it will not exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, when I hang out with my family, like they talk about <laughs> home ownership all the time. Like they talk about like money and objects and like going to Kmart to get a poster of Paris to put in a lounge room because it's like nice, you know, like it's like the total, <laughs> total bogan stuff. But like, you know, I think that, um, the, yeah, it's interesting to think about that gap between, uh, the middle class friends you have who are in the arts but who have a property portfolio because they've been born into it <laughs> and they don't ever mention it and you don't hear about it and occasionally you see a picture of them at Christmas time at a beach house and you're like, oh, where's that? And that's a space that they can go to <laughs> and will have just you know got access to whether or not they own it but they are able to be in it. And then the kind of obsessive talk about this Grand Australian dream and like having a house and then having yes, maybe being one of the boomers who has a spare house, you know, that you have a, yeah, I think that this, it's kind of sickening in a way um, to think about our obsession and also that, um, you know, that kind of idea of like cruel optimism of like Lauren Ballant where we're told that we can just get this thing but the cruel optimism of it is it structures it against us and so we'll, it'll always be just outside of our grasp. 
but we're kind of indoctrinated into the belief that if we just have that thing, our life will be like perfect and better. And so we just go through kind of like grasping at this, like, like a cat chasing a ball of string that they can't quite reach. And then we die. (laughs) (laughs) When I went to art school, I was quite young. I was 17 when I started and I really had to learn how to be a person in that world. There were so many weirdly simple things that I didn't know or understand or hadn't experienced. Like, for example, I still really clearly remember being taught how to make stovetop espresso coffee, which everyone seemed to have in their share houses, but I just had never experienced it. Like the height of sophistication in my home was Makona instant coffee or like very occasionally, like for Christmas, my parents would get a percolator coffee. There were so many of these things that I I didn't know how to do. One of my art school friend's dads taught me how to make pasta sauce. So there were people around me who were showing me these things, but I didn't know so many of the tropes that go along with being a middle class kind of person with a precarious income and a knowledge of art. Mm. That's that's hilarious because I didn't have stovetop espresso mm. at home and it wasn't until I started living in share houses with, you know, like pretentious art school types. <laughs> it wasn't until I moved into hanging out in that world uh, which was really specific, and it was a different kind. It was a different kind of middle class of the middle class that I grew up with. Yeah, yeah, for yeah. Sure. It was more left wing. My middle class was very right wing and conservative, and very sexist and very homophobic. There's this other middle class where it was more of a lefty middle class. I think that that thing of like what you know and what you don't know. I mean, it's such a great lesson to remember, isn't it? Because I think, especially if you're like I'm a white person, right? So I'm part of a dominant culture in so in Australia, even though I am part of the global minority, actually, but because of like structures of power, <laughs> I am I'm on the inside of a cultural conversation a lot. So I try and learn that when I feel outside that it's really useful and important, you know, not to be centered all the time. And what can I, how can I experience this in a way that helps me be a better person? God, that sounds like so self-helpy and horrible, but like, (laughs) I do think it can be useful, I guess. But yeah, it's like those, I think that those moments of like being indoctrinated and like feeling that it's like, it's like a classic cinema thing, really. It's funny with the coffee thing, like I once got, and this wasn't even like a, but like I got employed <laughs> to work for an um, arts organization on their board day to take to be the note taker and I had to like make coffee and cut up some fruit and I was so freaked out because I didn't know how to make coffee in like a plunger because I was like w- we just had like instant coffee in my house like <laughs> so I like rang my friend in the bathroom I was like well, how much coffee do I put in here I was like so stressed and nervous to navigate this thing this was like must have been I mustn't have had a smartphone so it must have been like pre-2007 it would have been because yeah so and and then I like cut up the fruit and I cut up all of the fruit and there's like five people and I cut up like 15 oranges because like they had a bag of fruits but I just like didn't know how to 
it's so simple, but like there was all this like um, anxiety around me about like, oh, this is a board meeting. What the hell is a board meeting? I'm taking notes. And I like wrote down every single word that was said in that board meeting, which must have been now as a person who goes to board meetings as part of my job, that must have been horrendous because you don't want everything that's said. You just want like the main points, which is like what a note keeper <laughs> needs to keep track of. Yes. But at the time, I just remember being so sweaty and anxious about doing this weird, mysterious job. And then suddenly like, you know, learning through failure or, or busting your way through in some whatever way you can. <laughs> because if you haven't had that education or if you haven't been exposed it's weird to think like what are the mechanisms to teach you and it's like something that really stays with me often when I'm mentoring students or young artists I offer, we always offer like if you want to come to a board meeting <laughs> and you know sit through it and just see how those things work you're very welcome to and occasionally someone will come to an aphids board meeting and they're usually at the end, they're like, oh, that was pretty boring. And I'm like, yeah, it's pretty boring. <laughs> but, you know, just exposing yourself to those weird worlds can be really a part of, like, learning how to navigate a, a, an industry, a culture, a, a, you know, understanding how decisions get made or who who has control of a certain room or, you know, I think it's something to try and pass on even though it's interminable. <laughs> but it's like there are certain structures that, provide pathways to to <laughs> these things and it's not just about working hard because you don't actually exist in a vacuum you have to you know connect with the world at some point and, and that means connecting with power structures it comes back to this notion of art and culture as something that exists outside of capital you know that it exists outside of that it any kind of like talk of how you're going to be remunerated or how you're going to exist, how you're going to it sort of like muddies the kind of uh, beautiful place of art, which is pure and, and and doesn't have anything to do with the real world. <laughs> like, you know, it kind of comes from that like uh, very outmoded imagining of what art making is and how it happens. When we talk about class sometimes, I think it's easy to slip into this kind of upstairs downstairs notion of class yeah and like it's this really simple thing where there's these you know clearly defined class groups but it's really not and increasingly complex i think it's unusual for people to it's unusual for people to slip out of the structure that they're in i think it's also it's also really defined by political ideologies and there are these there's this kind of like there's this right-wing landowner middle class in Tasmania and a left-wing academic middle class in Tasmania and they're you know like and 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 they're really oppositional to each other they also cross over because I don't yeah. think it's also that simple either no it's probably and not. I think too when you're someone um, who straddles different worlds it is mm. quite complex to hold those those things and mm. and be okay with them both being true at the same time I guess yeah. Yeah. speaking of holding on to a, a narrative of like complexity within your own history is really important if only to say that people from the arts should come from lots of different places and hopefully more people with more different lived experiences should be in the arts because that makes you know it more interesting <laughs> in terms of what we hear but like how to hold those 
different types of precarity next to each other and think about on a larger scale like what you know what kind of cultural world we want and and how we make that happen i think that it's one of our big challenges is how do we have solidarity with each other how do we learn to do that in a way that is relevant to this time because i think it's something that we struggle with it's something we struggle with in the left you know like when we're expected to have like absolute integrity to everything and if someone makes a mistake then they must not have pure politics and they get called out or they get cancelled and not that I'm like cancel culture's gone mad but I'm like (laughs) I do think it's like how do we forgive each other for our imperfections and have really important debate about our differences but at the same time stand in solidarity with each other in order to make change and in order to support and and care for each other because it's worth it for some larger aim. I had a fascinating experience when I was hosting a, a thing for Dark Mofo, the film about Kathleen Hanna, the lead singer of Bikini Killer, and I used the phrase the fragmentation of the left because that's something that that's something that I've been really fed, you know, the idea that the left's fragmented. And she was like, it's not fragmented, it's diverse. And that's actually a really good thing. And one of the the things that has struck me ever since then is a way of reaching across apparent perceived barriers and making them not into barriers and trying to create complex communities that support each other. And it's really difficult, but you can actually do it. And that's something, maybe that's something that art's good for. But that's also stuff that's actually hard to sell. Maybe it's got another use. Maybe, you know, it's not a nice painting that someone from the middle class is going to make their home look gorgeous with. <laughs> Oops. Thank you, Andrew Harper. Thank you, Mish and Miriam, and to Front Yard, who's interview didn't make it into the podcast unfortunately this has been what are you looking at i'd love to hear any feedback that anybody has about this episode or any other you can email me at pip at contemporaryart.org.au you can listen to what are you looking at on all good podcasting apps and on the cat website of course at www.contemporaryarttasmania.org